This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Sockett, and joining me today is Julian Pistorius, a software engineer at the University of Arizona. I met Julian through a project called Exosphere, where I haven't really contributed anything meaningful yet, but I am just starting to learn Elm. And I can tell you that even with this small interaction with you, Julian, I can just tell that you're one of those rare, really passionate and driven engineers. So welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you very much, Vanessa. It's great to be here. So I think that you do quite a bit of work that ranges between HPC, cloud, and data science. But before we get into that, I want to zoom back in time to when you were possibly in training. So starting as far back as you think is appropriate, tell us your story. I was always as a teenager torn between engineering and people. I eventually ended up in a computer science degree at the University of Pretoria in South Africa and then at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. So I didn't really enjoy computing. I was in industry for a long time and I treated computing as a job to get money and freedom and that was it. Fast forward quite a few years later, I realized that I care about helping people and about having an impact in the world. And I stopped seeing computer science and programming as just a way to make money. And I started seeing it as a way to change the world for the better and to help people with their problems and particular research problems. So I guess early 2016, somebody told me about a job at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I was a little bit skeptical because I'd been in industry for a long time and I thought university jobs were boring and bureaucratic and lots of meetings and I'm very allergic to bureaucracy. And I was pleasantly surprised when I joined the team at Cybers, um, which is a National Science Foundation cyber infrastructure project and discovered just how much fun it can be and the interesting work that there is. So that is, I think that's history. I was working at Cybers until fairly recently, and then I moved over to the College of Agriculture and Life Science. We're using Cybers' infrastructure, so I still have a connection with Cybers. I would say that many of us are allergic to bureaucracy. It gives me just a terrible rash. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Your profile mentions that you have a particular interest in decentralized, organic, anti-fragile computing systems. I'm familiar with organic when used at the supermarket to talk about tomatoes, but probably not when used with software. Can you tell us more about what a decentralized computing system is and what makes it organic? I'm probably using the word organic in two different ways there, but the way that I like to think of myself and on our Slack internally, my tagline is organic software farmer. Being in the software industry for a while, I saw the hubris of the engineering or architecture approach where the metaphors are rigid structures that you have to plan ahead. And I saw these projects fail time and time again, basically because of this engineering conceit that we can predict the future and we know better than our users what they want. The projects that I saw succeeding were projects that were humble, started small and were tended by people who cared about them and who cared about the users and were flexible and able to adapt. I realized that good software project is more like a garden, something that you tend. It's a very organic thing. It involves people. Software is, is a social construct and people make or break everything in it. So that is what I mean by organic. It needs to exist. It needs to create value for the people who build it, for the people who use it. And if you don't have somebody tending your software garden, 
pulling the weeds that need to be pulled and introducing new species to balance things out, you will end up with a desolate wasteland um, of a project. So that's what I mean when I say organic software. I see myself more as a gardener of software as well as communities. That's my other love is growing the communities around software. I really appreciate that metaphor. I've seen communities that started out sort of organic in the way that you described it and really flourished. And then because of the way that the project was managed or structured or the incentives that were made public, when that changed, then it would either just get awkward or sort of turn the community away. And then you might see the project slowly fade, at least from that original energy that they had. And it's a really interesting thing because if you're leading an open source project, you don't always, it's funny, I've seen a lot of leaders that don't always think of the people. They think of, oh, well, how can I create commercial open source and make a profit here? But by way of trying to do that, they actually kill their community. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I found that too. I think that if you don't put people first and try to understand what people's needs are, what problems they are, you are putting the cart in front of the horse and you're not going very far, very fast. I've become a lot more humble <laughs> as, I've, as I've learned and I try to make fewer assumptions and put my feelers out there and don't trust authorities, especially ones who have vested interests. I found some good homes in the research software community, so I'm grateful for that. Speaking of these homes, would you consider Exosphere one of your projects? Yes, Exosphere came about as a side project while I was working at Cyrus on the Atmosphere Research Cloud Service Platform that came out of there. I was hired to work on that. A couple of colleagues and I, we thought there might be a different way of achieving the same value for our users, but with a radically different approach. And so it became as a side project and a hobby, and so it's grown into something that's taken on a bit of a life of its own. It's in use by a few people, and we're looking for funding, and there are some interesting opportunities around at the moment. I can't talk too much about that, but I love it, and mostly because it gives me the ability to scratch itches, and on behalf of researchers and research computing folks who just want a simple way to use cloud infrastructure. That's how that came about. So it's my little passion project. And Chris Martin and I, he's my co-conspirator on that. We've been working on that. It's just a lot of fun. And we can build things and talk to people and find out what their problems are and try and either show them how to use it to help themselves or learn from them and go, oh, this might actually be a really good thing to put into there. That's how I started Exosphere. It's definitely one of my favorite things to work on. The use case is spot on. Actually, right at the same time that I stumbled on the project, we were having that discussion in my group as well. Like, hey, we have on demand, but how can we have a better way for researchers to actually create their own instances? Yeah. Before we jump too far ahead, can you tell us what Cyverse is? I don't think everyone listening probably is familiar with Cyverse is a, uh, a large National Science Foundation a virtual organization, I guess you can call it, a project that came about through collaboration between multiple institutions, the University of Arizona, TAC at Texas, and uh, New Cold Spring Harbor, and I know I'm forgetting something, various places around the country who realized that they needed the ability to serve their scientific research communities in a way by combining things like cloud computing and easily usable workflows, along with flexible data storage, metadata, 
and somewhere safe that the data can live and still being able to operate on it. So it's like this layer cake of varying services and products and you can hook into them depending on what your needs are and you can combine them with other things. It's a, an organization and a project and lots of software. It's kind of a dizzying thing to look at from the outside and it took me a while just from the inside to figure out how everything works. But it definitely was a crash course for me and what researchers need. I was on the front lines of user support as part of supporting the cloud computing product. And I realized I really enjoy talking to researchers. And the true, I guess, the agile, <laughs> the agile methodology, talking to users gave me an insight into the more important problems to solve. Uh, it showed me what people cared about and it gave me ideas for new ways to solve problems that I wouldn't necessarily have come up myself because researchers are very creative. <laughs> they will do things with your software that you don't expect them to. And then instead of saying you shouldn't do that, you go, hmm, what is it that you're actually trying to do? And then you start seeing the commonality across it. And I find that so, so satisfying as coming up with creative solutions that can help a few people solve a similar class of problems. That led to, I guess, my other big passion in this area is community building. I didn't really have the opportunity to talk to researchers other than the research analysts, the science analysts that worked at Cybers, and maybe the people on the support system. But I wanted to talk to researchers regularly. I wanted them to be comfortable and I wanted them to be relaxed, you know, talking to somebody who's trying to get their workflow to run and they're stressed and they lost their data. And, you know, that's sometimes not the best environment to talk to them. So I met some Australians at a conference in Austin. And they told me about something called Research Bazaar, which is a grassroots community that they started there to pick up where your normal IT help desk can't really do. They can't have long conversations with people about what people care about and what it is that they are trying to achieve. And it's also not something that something like the software carpentries can do in the short form workshops. It's something in between where it's forming relationships and understanding and long-term collaborations and checking in with people and forming that bond, that self-supporting structure of people who are varying in the spectrum from engineers, researcher, research software engineers, and infrastructure operators all around. And then having these conversations just happen and people finding out that there's a community where they can find help and support. And even if it's just moral support, that's how I started Research Bazaar Arizona. It's the Tucson chapter of it with colleague and good friend at that time who was also working at Cyrus, Dr. Blake Joyce. He came from that. He calls himself the code curious biologist and I'm the biology curious coder. So we formed the team. That's great. <laughs> That's been going since 2016. And we have had, I think we're coming up to our fourth annual festival, which is a two, three day festival of various things. That's quite unlike anything. I guess the closest thing might be a music festival crossed with a science conference, paper conference or something like that. We see people from all walks of life, all places that wouldn't normally hang out and share tips and tricks and knowledge that they have from humanities and social science and engineering and medical people. It's fascinating to see the, just the blend of people who find how much they have in common. Um, so that's just the annual festivals. We also have weekly events. We have hacky hour, go to a local pub from 4 to 7 p.m., and people bring laptops or not and talk about data and coding. And then there's coffee and code that's on Tuesday mornings and similar sort of thing, but with coffee. It's a great community of completely independent grassroots. We've managed to do it with no funding. It's just researchers and research computing folks solving their own problems and creating their own community from scratch. What is so 
awesome about the hacky hour and the annual festival that you just described, other than the fact that you just organically came up with it, you created these events that aren't so super hyper controlling, like, oh, we are going to sit down and discuss the architecture of this software. You made events that are fun. You made events that will bring people in, that will just get them talking. That seems like the secret sauce, right? <laughs> For really growing real relationships between people that are writing the research software and then the people that really need research software. That is awesome. Have you ever done any kind of write-up or something so that you can share these ideas with other institutions that haven't made anything fun yet and desperately need to? The Australian folks who started it, they've written quite a bit about that and they've inspired us. We've done similar things. There have been some other US locations that have started up and have asked us for help and tips. Blake and I, we are talking about writing a, like a cookbook where it's like, okay, this is how you get started. This is how you promote things. This is the minimum thing you can start with. And if you can only do this and you get the right initial people, eventually, well, in our experience, it just slowly grew organically. And then the advantages of that, I think it's valuable and also very hard to measure. <laughs> so that is, a, that is a tricky one. But I think the signs that matter are the stories that come out of that. This is RSE stories. We realized that the stories that we can tell of the researchers that we've helped, you know, who wouldn't have graduated um, otherwise, um, who would have given up, the people who came up with new and interesting ways of solving problems because they found a community and they were able to leverage the knowledge and the connections of that community. So I think that is very inspiring. I think that's something that we haven't done a very good job about is writing up those stories. And I think you might have inspired me to do that this year because we have so many new people interested in this. We have a steering committee of passionate people who are here in Arizona. So now we can start focusing on, okay, well, what does this look like if we wanted to spread the word and inspire other institutions to do that? So I think, I think it's time. I think so too, because I would definitely want to buy that cookbook. <laughs> the price of the cookbook is spreading the good word in your own community. I think I realized that, as I said earlier, the thing that motivates me is creating an impact. And that can be through creating software that solves specific problems, but it can also be in spreading the word that people are able to solve these problems themselves a lot of times, um, given the right starting conditions and inspiration. And I think that people solving the problems for themselves both empowers them and gives them the confidence. And I think paying it forward is the price, essentially. So nothing would please me more than to see more of these little communities spring up all over the place. And I think that's actually how we met because I'm also involved with Science Gateway Ambassadors Program, talking with them about how to grow these kinds of organic communities. And Sandra Jessing, who's in charge of that, she put us in touch. All these relationships that I formed through outreach with communities, trying to find out where, what people's problems are and trying to help other people do similar things. That's been, I think, creating an impact. And I think you are doing the similar thing with the ROC stories is we are on the leading edge in the US anyway of this movement. There is a thing that you can do with software that can change the world. You may not think so, and you may not think that you're one of these people. Software is a lever and it's a tool. And I think research is a ripe area where even with modest software engineering skills, I don't think I'm a particularly fantastic software engineer, for example, but if I was to apply what skills I have anywhere, as opposed to, I don't know, Wall Street or Silicon Valley, social media or something like that, I think the research world and the research communities, I think the long-term payback is just so wonderful. That is so gratifying. 
if anybody is interested in or not sure that they might want to become a research software engineer, that's my pitch is, do you want to make a difference? You do not have to be an amazing engineer. You just need to listen to people and be able to use the tools of computing and you're going to make the world a better place. So that's why I get out of bed every morning with a smile on my face. Best job of my life. That's the reason I love my job too. We talked a little bit, we sort of tiptoed around what you do in your role and I'm getting the sense that you do consider yourself a research software engineer. Let's talk about how you see yourself and your role and how you'd like to grow in the next five years. I never stand still, it seems. Uh, <laughs> I was doing a research software engineer phenotype this morning to try and figure out who the people I help are and how I help them. And that, I think, has shifted over time and is definitely shifting now. So I work for the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences and the Agriculture Data Science, where those crossover trying to build tools and technologies to help farmers and agricultural researchers leverage data and computing better without them having to write everything from scratch every time. That's my one foot in the building software specifically for specific kind of research field. With the Exosphere project, depending on what happens in the next few months, six months, I may actually end up being in the position where I have to run a project for the first time. So now I'm talking to funding agencies, I'm talking to large academic cloud providers at various campuses around the world, trying to help them help their constituency. So it's almost like wholesaling, <laughs> if, you can, if you can call it that. But keeping myself humble and knowing what the end users are doing with their product is something that I don't think I'd ever want to get away from because I think you lose perspective if you build something without talking to the people who use them. But I am more and more talking to larger organizations who have a need to provide easy to consume infrastructure for their researchers. There's not a lot out there. We want to make it possible for researchers to use their cloud credits, for example, Amazon, Azure, Google, but not be necessarily stuck or tied to the particular implementations of that. So Exosphere is a philosophy and a tool to try and give you a single sort of pane of glass, if you can think about it, a single interface to your computing resources, whatever you may have access to. I guess we're seeing Exosphere as the equivalent of open on demand, which some people might be familiar with. Open on demand is a nice user interface to HPC, so you don't have to immediately jump into the command line. So Exosphere is a sort of similar thing for cloud computing. And we're trying to smooth over the differences between all the different clouds so that you should be able to run your cloud workloads or start up your gateway server or whatever on whatever cloud infrastructure you have access to. You're also touching on something I think is fairly common for RSCs and probably also just general software engineers across all domains. There's sometimes this push that in order to grow or advance, or in your case, you have a project that you want to give life to, that you have to slowly take on more of what kind of looks like a manager or a person that gets things done that aren't always just sitting down and writing code. Are you finding that push with Exosphere and how are you thinking about it? How are you handling it? Yes, it started creeping in. Writing white papers to send to program offices to say one page. These are the things that we think 
would help researchers think this is why you should give us a little bit of money so that we can keep working on it. Doing that as opposed to writing code, helping new developers on board, reaching out to other organizations who may be interested in something like that. So my collaborator, Chris Martin, or CMart is his handle everywhere. He is the diametric opposite to me in so many ways. <laughs> we always joke that he's the warp and under weft. I don't know if anybody's familiar with weaving. He is straight up and down. If you give him something, he will figure it out. And I am all over the place. I'm going left and right, left and right, weaving all the, all the things, connecting all different kinds of things and different ideas and seeing opportunities. And I don't think either of us would be as successful on our own as we are together. I, being the more social <laughs> outreach, I like to help with the problem solving, but then I easily switch to, okay, well, strategy. How do we go forward? How do we talk to these people and you know, making connections and things like that? Not that he doesn't do that. We share that he's spoken to some people and we're in the part of the country he lives. We definitely see the role balance starting to shift and it's a little bit perplexing slash nerve wracking for me. I've always viewed myself as a software engineer first and foremost. So yes, uh, watch this space. I don't think I will ever want to stop writing code. And I think if you lose touch with the coding, probably as bad as losing touch with the people that you're trying to help with your code. Because what we realized early on, see Martin and I, is that developers are also people, <laughs> believe it or not. So one of the things that we wanted to do is to make sure that Exosphere was easy and fun to work on not a slog. If I stop touching the Exosphere code base, I might stop losing empathy for new developers. So I never want to get to that point. Plus I always just, I just enjoy writing Elm. It's my new favorite language. Yeah. And you know, it's totally okay to put on a hat for a little while and then say, okay, this, this job is done. I'm going to take off this hat and, or you just, you know, switch them back and forth whenever you need to. I think it's great that you do weave back and forth and you're not so straight up and down that you're able to say, you know what, this is what needs to be done right now. So this is what I'm going to do. Exactly. We're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. I do want to ask you more about Elm. So, <laughs> Go so for Elm, it. I love talking about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So a lot of people probably aren't familiar with Elm. It's what I think Exosphere is somewhat implemented in. Yes. So could you tell us about it? Yes. Okay. So Exosphere is virtually 99% Elm. For people who haven't heard of Elm, the language was recently <laughs> upgraded from obscure to niche. It is becoming more and more widely known. It is a language to write front-end web applications in. I think the tagline is something like a delightful language to write reliable web apps. It's the language that when Seamart and I decided to write Exosphere in a completely different way, we realized that we didn't have to actually have a backend server sense because we're talking to services that already expose APIs. OpenStack was the primary and first one. There aren't very many easily consumable user interfaces that non-system operators can use. We had worked on the Atmosphere product, which had a front-end and a back-end. That back-end talked to another back-end and it was very complicated to work on. We decided we're gonna have only a front end. We're gonna have a pure client application. So that would mean that you could just deploy it as an Electron app, like the Slack app on your desktop, or it could be just some static HTML and JavaScript posted on a, a GitHub pages. That was our goal. We were trying to see how little we could get away with because every line of code is a line of code you have to maintain. Neither of us really wanted to dive into JavaScript or CSS. I used Nobody to. Nobody does. <laughs> 
power to people who do enjoy that world. It's not me. I like a simple tool set, as simple as few tools as possible to help me focus on solving the underlying problem. And the thing with the JavaScript ecosystem was it constantly in flux. Choices are so bewildering about what packages you're going to use and what build manager you now have to use this day. We were aware of this little niche language called Elm, a statically typed pure functional programming language inspired by languages like Haskell and OCaml, but it's simpler than a lot of those languages. It's a very small language. There's really only functions and types that you have to deal with, which is not to say that it's easy <laughs> to learn if you come from something else. Simple is not necessarily easy if you have to change the way you think. But we took up the challenge and I think the payoff has been fantastic because one thing that we both knew is that with almost any language, it's easy to get started and to build something and then put it out there. But that is like the first 1% of a software's life. Most of software development is in, as I mentioned, the gardening part, caring and tending for the source code, refactoring it changing it because things have changed. You've learned new things. The beauty of Elm is the compiler is your friend. The compiler tells you if you forgot something somewhere. And so refactoring becomes a lot less stressful. We're not afraid to change the code base because we know the compiler has our back. It's kind of having this invisible buddy coder along with you for the ride. You have this wonderful experience where you get into the flow really easily. And I think this is going to be the key to us growing this sustainably. I can step away from the code base for a month and come back and I can be immediately productive. And I've never had that before with anything else. Also, the Elm community is just one of the friendliest communities. It reminded me of the early Python community. To some extent, I think I chose the tool because I thought it was a technically sound decision, but I also chose it for a very personal reason, which is that it helps my brain keep on track. There is no going off course and getting distracted by this because there's really very few ways to do things you don't realize the value of tools that have your back a good simple language with strict type checking that warns you when doing something that could get you into trouble until you get to that larger sort of start medium to large BC. size bc projects yes and then it's too late often to choose another technology and then you have to have to throw more and more people at it and we want it to be sustainable long-term, even in this you know, age of vicarious funding. Definitely. Someone needs to make one of those cartoons that shows how the compiler is for each language. And so for Elm, it would be like the Teletubby that's giving you a hug. And then you have another compiler. What compiler do you think is like really mean? Oh, oh my goodness. Prologue. I okay, remember. so then we have the Prologue <laughs> compiler that's like this dinosaur monster that's like about to eat the developer and he's screaming. And it's just like the, the computer says no. Like Prologue from university, I just remember it. It's so frustrating. Give you so few clues. Haskell is another rough one. C++ is always, always been a bit of a nightmare. I do see more and more languages like Rust learning from Elm's compiler and trying to make those error messages as helpful as possible. So we're coming up, actually, I shouldn't say we're coming up on time. I've taken way too much of the time. <laughs> Julian, thank you so much for being on RSE Stories today. 
I actually had so much more that we could chat about, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I also want to say that all of the ideas and methods for working that you've shared, you really truly live them in just our small interaction. It has been really fun and I'm learning definitely for sure. I have to return the compliment. I have been using your work for coming up to two years now. I've used Singularity and, and taught Singularity to researchers at workshops and use it personally to solve problems, as well as the scientific file system, which is another project of yours. And so I really resonate with your approach as well. I really like the way that you put systems together and uh, how you communicate about it to people. Kudos to you. And I love this community of research software engineers and how we can learn from each other and use each other's work. It's great to have people like you and other software engineers around to be inspired by. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind. Yeah, touche. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again for inviting me. I really enjoyed this chat. And yes, it did feel like it was too short. Yes, for sure. Thanks. Thanks.